Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media and yes i said the remnant podcast not the advisory opinions podcast um because uh sometimes this podcast has to do the work that that podcast won't do um and so um, i'm very excited to have back um keith whittington and I'm reading now from, and you can guess what the lar- what the thrust of this podcast is going to be about, from the fact that I'm reading from his bio in the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court Report, um, because his last name begins with a W. He's actually the last person on the list of contributors or members. Uh, Keith E. Whittington is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University is incur- and is currently the chair of academic Freedom Alliance. He works on American constitutional history, politics and law, and on American political thought. He's the author of Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present, and Political Foundations of Judicial Supremacy, the Presidency, the Supreme Court, and Constitutional Leadership in U.S. History. And then it lists all these fancy pants schools where you have to wear belts that he's taught at. And anyway, he's at Princeton. Um, Keith Welcome back to the Remnant. Good to have you here. Thanks, I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, and if Advisory Opinions is ever willing to actually have somebody on to you know, challenge them on stuff, I'm, I'm happy to do that too. Oh, shots fired! Uh, <laughs> I have suggested to them in the past that they have you on on various issues, but I, I guess they're just—I just they're just scared. That, they obviously—they're the obviously, obviously scared. It's the only—it's the only possible explanation as to uh, why they prefer their echo chamber rather than. Uh, having having other people on um so and i asked like so because i'm not in enough trouble with one set of colleagues i should also say that my friend adam white who's my colleague at the american enterprise institute was also on this commission and between the two of you you made up what two-thirds three-fourths <laughs> of the conservatives <laughs> on the commission um probably not quite that many but yeah it's a, it's a sizable component um yeah the commission was designed to be bipartisan biden had promised um that it would be a bipartisan in some fashion so there was uh, there were um a handful um of uh, more conservative members and um adam white was uh, among them so now, is it true that Adam won the uh, the hot dog eating contest that you guys did? <laughs> I, I don't think I was informed about the hot dog eating contest, um, which is probably just as well. I, I, I'm an extremely slow eater, and so it would have been a foregone conclusion, and I would have lost any kind of eating contest. I had heard that you were sort of like Bill Murray and, and Meatballs standing behind him saying, look at all those steaming weenies. All right. There you go. <laughs> um, where to begin? Um, yes, you can tell I'm in a, I'm in a place. Um, 
So why don't we just sort of start while I think most listeners know the broad outline, but why don't you just sort of start about why this commission was created uh, and what it actually did and didn't do. And was it really just a classic, I'll start it by asking, was it a classic politician's blue ribbon committee to kick the can, you know, to get rid of an issue that the president didn't want to deal with? Take it however you want. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I don't have any inside information on what the uh, administration's thinking was about um, why they ought to have the commission or, or the president's thinking about this. Um, uh, from an outside uh, perspective, it certainly looks like it was a kicking the can down the road uh, kind of move. Um, um, uh, then candidate uh, Joe Biden was being pressured during the campaign um, to take a position um, on um, court packing, which was um, attracting uh, more and more support among uh, progressive activists. Um, Biden actually is on the record in the past as being opposed to those kinds of things. Um, I don't think he seems very sympathetic now to it either, um, but he wasn't willing during the campaign to simply uh, say this is a lousy idea. Um, and so instead, he said during the camp, he promised during the campaign that he would appoint a commission. He, I think he said at that stage um, there would be a bipartisan commission. Uh, to review the issue. Um, so uh, that seemed like an effort to sort of push it past the election, at least to avoid him having to uh, stake out a position. Um, and then um, uh, somewhat remarkably, um, he actually appointed such a commission um, uh, once uh, once he became president. Um, uh, both actually created a commission to, to deal with the issue, but also um, kept his promise of um, having it be somewhat bipartisan and, and appointed some conservative members um, uh, to to the commission um, as as well. You know, I think at that stage, of course, it becomes a little less obvious what the commission is supposed to be doing. <laughs> I mean, it has an obvious formal um, uh, charge um, associated with the executive order that creates the commission, uh, lays out what it wanted us to do, which was to um, evaluate uh, competing arguments uh, regarding uh, possible reforms to the Supreme Court. Um it was specific that it did not want recommendations um, as to what reforms uh, ought to be uh, pursued, which makes it a little unusual as uh, these kind of commissions go, that we weren't supposed to um, uh, uh, give it, give advice as to what exactly um, uh, the political branches ought to be uh, doing on this front. We are simply as to analyze the um, options. Um and so at the end, you know, and obviously the starting point was was court packing issues, since that was the initial question that fed the thing. But the but the executive order was not specific about court expansion. It was structured more broadly about the Supreme Court uh, generally and reforms regarding the Supreme Court generally. Um, and a fair amount of the report deals with things other than court packing. Um, so there's a chapter that focuses on term limits. Um, there's a, for the justices. There's chapters that focus on other. Uh, reform proposals that um, have been uh, floating around. Um, and so court packing got a lot of attention, um, uh, but it turns out that what the commission actually focused on was was a lot more than just that. No, but it, I mean, I, I know the report didn't explicitly call for recommendations, but it kind of seems like you guys made, members made, found a way, life finds a way, and <laughs> you guys found a way to uh, state some opinions on various things. Was that was that all on like this oral meeting thing that got broken out? Uh, I think it's hard not to in some ways, right? Because because the extent that we were supposed to provide um, analysis of some of the issues, including legal analysis of some of the issues, that necessarily is going to wind up um, putting the thumb on the scale as to how credible some things are. And so there are places in the report, for example, where 
um, uh, the report is fairly clear that there are some serious, uh, there'd be some serious constitutional issues with trying to do some reforms by statute as opposed to a sta- constitutional amendment, for example, term limits, for example. While um, the report notes that some commissioners think you could do it strictly through statute, uh, most of the commissioners think that you would need a constitutional amendment to do it. Um, it's pretty clear that the um, arguments um, uh, on the statute side of, of uh, term limits um, are, are pretty problematic. Um, and so, you know, there, I think there are places where it comes down more firmly in one direction or another. Um, uh, I had hoped at one point that um, the basic question of court packing actually would sort of look like that and that the um, report might actually be um, uh, fairly clear. Um, that core packing is um, a problematic endeavor, um, but but that's not where we wound up. Some of the commissioners um, were much more supportive of core packing uh, than I would have hoped, um, and so it took a, a much more neutral um, position about how to think about those issues, and really did uh, just try to lay out the pros and cons of of uh, court expansion measures. So uh, let's let's talk about the court packing thing because I mean I, I I've written a bit about this, and I you know. I, I am by no stretch of the imagination in the same neighborhood as, as to call myself anything like a legal historian or uh, know any legal word stuff. But uh, I have read a good deal about New Deal history and American history. And um, during one of the sort of, I mean, gaslighting is overused um, a, a good deal these days for various reasons. Uh, um, but like the the onslaught of liberal pundits and liberal analysts and liberal lawmakers who were insisting that court packing was some recently invented right wing word or term that um, was loading was distorting the debate and that um, uh, you know we shouldn't use it and you shouldn't use this, this these sort of right wing code words. When I, so I went and I have, I probably have two dozen scattered around here of like the top new deal historian, you know, like, and I'm talking about like William Luchtenberg, you know, deans of the liberal historian guys, they all use court packing. They all use it both descriptively and negatively. Like this idea, this sort of retconning of the idea that court packing was bad, uh, wasn't bad, um, in the liberal imagination. Was biz- was really kind of amazing to me, and um, it was almost as Orwellian as like what was it during the Kavanaugh? No, it was during the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing where Webster's actually went in and changed the definition to a word in real time to make her look bad. Um, so, like, uh, was there a you know? Tell me just a little bit about your discussions with the 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 liberal legal eagles on there was there at least an acknowledgement that historically court packing was viewed with disfavor um or was it just this whole new sort of let's just reinvent history thing yeah no i think there's a general recognition that court packing was historically viewed in disfavor um and then the question largely becomes one of uh despite all that is it's justified now because the circumstances are special and different um, and maybe this court packing would be 
better and different than past uh, episodes of court packing. Um, I certainly share your frustration about the effort to um, uh, shift the language um, on on this front. Um, I guess it's fundamentally predictable. I mean, even the Roosevelt administration, when it was uh, making its proposal, uh, didn't pitch it as court packing. They pitched it as a uh, plan to reorganize uh, the judiciary. Um, critics uh, called it court packing. Critics had already been calling it court packing when Congress uh, and when members of Congress had proposed it during uh, Roosevelt's first term. And some of the advocates of it called it court packing um, during Roosevelt's first term uh, when there had been discussions of it. Um, but we, so, you know, clearly it's a, it's a, a terminology that um, implies a certain kind of criticism um, of the action, um, in part because it is so associated with the 37 episode. Um, it has taken on a very negative resonance about talking about these issues. And so I guess in some ways I don't blame uh, progressives who are supportive of this to want to find a different term to talk about it, um, call it court expansion, court right-sizing, whatever it is you want to say. Um I get pretty uh, impatient, I guess, with a lot of these kind of semantic um, uh, uh, maneuvers in in part because it seems like no matter what you call it, um, the bad odor is going to um, uh, find its way to the next thing uh, you want to say it's it's labeled. And so, you know, we're being told now, for example, we can't call um, a movement woke. Um, uh, there's these, uh, you know, uh, lengthy debates on uh, what counts as critical race theory uh, and the like. And at some level, it doesn't matter what you call these things. There's a there's a substantive phenomenon that's, that underlies it. And people have views about that. And if you adopt more neutral sounding language, call it court expansion, um, uh, people who disagree with it will pretty quickly decide court expansion is pretty bad, too. Um, and uh, you don't act to gain, gain all that much. Um, I think the Babylon Bee just had a thing that said, and I may be misremembering who said it, but I think it was them, you know, Please just tell me what term I can use for your society transforming philosophy, and I'll call it that. I mean, I, like, I don't care what, call it woke, call it this, call it that, you know, call it anti-racism, come up with a name, and then we'll have a discussion about it. But they don't want to, they want to keep moving, target moving, you know? I think that's right. Although I, although I'm impatient with that debate in general, I also um, am quite frustrated by the desire to, um, uh, control how I use the language on this front. And so, um, um, I don't have a lot of patience either with people who say that I'm not allowed to say court packing. Um, like if I, if I think it's court packing, I ought to be able to say it's court packing and, and explain why I think that's a bad thing. Um, and so I prefer the people not say, no, no, the politically correct term is, is expansion and you have to say that, um, instead, um, you know, calling court packing does tap into, um, a certain history and a longstanding set of views about why this is a bad thing. And, and so um, I think we ought to be free to tap into that history um, and people's traditional uh, skepticism about um, uh, these kinds of expansion uh, plans. Yeah, I, I don't want to draw overly lawyerly distinctions, no offense, but... Um, hey, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a political scientist. So. Um, oh, good. Then we can talk freely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree with you. In, I, I agree with you entirely on, on, on your complaint. I guess I think there are shades of it though. It's like you can have an honest conversation. Like we, you, you can still have the same conversation with somebody if they want to call it court expansion. Um, like I have no, I have no patience with anybody who takes personal offense as if I've used, you know, some sort of antiquated racial term, you know, when I say court packing, you know, there's just like, there's no, nothing to take offense at, but, um, but 
part of my problem was the just total complete whitewashing of American political and journalistic and, you know, history, historiography in general to make it sound like, you know, they made it sound like the right invented this term for this argument, you know, for this political controversy. It's a little, it's a little reminiscent of, I remember Nina Nina Totenberg, you know, she was the one who pushed over and over again that, uh, uh, Alito was known by people as Scalito because she, he was a sort of Scalia's mini me. And it turns out like, if you did a Nexus search, she was like the only one who actually said that. And (laughs) similarly, she used to talk about these, you know, the, this conservative legal movement and referring to the constitution and exile. And no one used that term half as much as she did. You know, I mean, there's this tendency to sort of take the spin that you don't like and then impugn it and then pin it to the right and say, see, that's how they talk. When in fact, no, that's how you talk about how they talk, which is a different thing. But yeah, no, I, I, I get very frustrated. And of course it seems to be true. A lot of our political discourse these days that, um, um, it's very ahistorical history starts, uh, either yesterday or whenever it is, uh, you'd like to peg it in order to maximize, uh, the attractiveness of your own position. And so, um, uh, and, and we see that sort of going on in, in all kinds of debates. Um, the other thing I find sort of even more frustrating than the um, uh, whether or not we're allowed to call court packing court packing uh, debate is is uh, the effort to redefine court packing to mean uh, filling ordinary vacancies <laughs> on, on the court, <laughs> right, right, right? Right. Which we've been doing that for a long time as well. I mean, during the Reagan administration, um, uh, liberal scholars would call um, Reagan filling uh, a point, filling the bench as court packing, um, which which is just an effort to leverage the fact that that everyone thinks court packing is a bad idea and then apply to something else. But the consequence is you obscure um, uh, what we thought was bad about court packing in the first place and and heighten um, uh, the sense of illegitimacy that comes with filling ordinary appointments in ways that are quite problematic. And at this stage, it becomes just confusing to even have, try to have conversations with people because there's an extraordinary number of partisans out there who just want to say, Anytime you put a judge on the bench that I don't like, that's court packing. And so as a consequence, there's no difference between you doing that and the ordinary course of events and my adding 50 new justices uh, to the bench um, and sticking them on. Um, it's, it's all court packing. And so who, who's to say uh, which one might be uh, worse? And so, um, so these language games just serve, sort of <laughs> transparently serve uh, political projects in, in ways that I just... Uh, uh, you know, it's just another one of these things I just find extraordinarily annoying about how our uh, current political debates uh, tend to take place. All right. Lest we be accused of hypocrisy for, for just talking about the language games and not actually talking <laughs> about the substance. Um, and I will, I will plead guilty for steering the conversation in that direction in the first place. What is, um, what's the problem with court expansion, right? What is the, what is the problem with adding three, four more seats to the Supreme Court? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it always depends on sort of what it is you're trying to accomplish um, uh, with um, expanding the size of the court. So um, uh, in the 19th century, there were several moments when we expanded the size of the court in order to add new justice. Uh, We've seen that occur at the state level um, as well as in other countries um, to some degree as well. Um, And in some cases, um, there is 
relatively apolitical reasons for wanting um, uh, to do that. So um, you might think that as the workload of the court um, expands, you need to add justices in order to handle um, uh, the workload. Um, that was FDR's there, actual pretext, right? That, that was, was FDR's pretext. And and, in, and it was a pretext precisely in part because that had been a traditional rationale for adding new justice to the court was people understood um, this would be a good reason to add a justice to the court if the court was actually dealing with a lot of new business. Um uh, the, the, it turns out that wasn't very true in that particular context. It's even less true now. I mean, part, um, uh, there were very significant reforms in the early 20th century, um, that gave the court, um, uh, uh, great control over its own docket. And so the justices can control their own workload. Uh, we've actually expanded that over time. So now the justices have almost complete control um, over their workload. And as a consequence, if the justices don't want to take on more work, they just don't. And so and so we completely disconnected um, any possibility of thinking about workload issues uh, from how many justices there are. And so that kind of argument, I think it's just a non-starter in the current environment. Uh, uh, it's also potentially true that you might think that you need a certain size bench in order to um, deal with the kind of diversity of membership that you would like to see um, on the court. And so um, early in the nation's history, we tied uh, the seats of the justices to um, uh, circuit courts and geographic um, uh, workload uh, issues as well. And we thought the justices um, uh, not only ought to have authority over a particular circuit and handling uh, work in that circuit, um, but they ought to come from that circuit. And so if you had um, a circuit that composed the New England states, you ought to have a justice from New England um, who served that function. And you can imagine all kinds of reasons why you might then think there's an attractiveness to um, uh, designing a court of a certain size in order to capture the kind of diversity that you want to um, uh, have on the court. Uh, they at the time are very concerned about geographic issues in the early 19th century. You can imagine us thinking in terms of uh, demographic diversity of various sorts or even partisan um, diversity on the court and needing a court of a certain size to do that. But none of that's really what's on the table right now, not really what we're debating about. What we're debating about now is whether or not you add additional seats um, to the court in order to put new people on the court that's going to change the direction of the jurisprudence. And so uh, how do you uh, design a court that's more likely to give you the answers that you want um, in uh, particular cases? That was fundamentally what was driving FDR um, in uh, the fight over court packing in 1937. And fundamentally, that's what's driving um, uh, the debate um, uh, now. Um, and that's an intrinsically political decision. Um, uh, how bad do you think the court's jurisprudence is? How important do you think that it is that you change the direction of the court? Um, and if you think things are bad enough, um, then uh, you might think uh, that it's appropriate to take a step like um, expanding the size of the court in order to do it. The serious institutional downside of um, uh, expanding the court uh, for that purpose um, is you have um, uh, quite obviously uh, just said the political branches ought to be able to control the future direction of constitutional law. Um, uh, we might think that subverts the whole point of having an independent judiciary that's capable of interpreting and enforcing the Constitution. Um, and you've also um, said, and we're perfectly happy to reshape the direction of constitutional law uh, through simple statutes because you can add seats to the court through simply passing legislation through Congress. Um, and if a narrow majority can do that today, a narrow majority can do that tomorrow, 
um, as well. And so you would expect um, there's going to be um, uh, reprisals um, uh, in a current environment in which, for example, now a Democratic majority uh, might be able to push through um, a court packing bill. Um, you should expect that there will be um, Republican majorities in the not too distant future, and they uh, will be inclined to do the exact same thing. Um, and not only does that defeat the purpose then from your perspective of why you'd want to do court packing in the first place, but in the long term, that just um, totally subverts the court and turns it into a political football um, and undermines its ability to function effectively within the system. And so you have to take seriously um, how bad would it be um, if you were effectively to neuter uh, the Supreme Court and um, uh, significantly weaken the third branch of government. And for some advocates of court packing, um, that's a cost worth bearing. Um, that they actually don't mind, um, that that might be the outcome. Um, and if that's your um, basic approach, then that's one kind of calculation to make. On the other hand, if you think the idea of judicial review and independent judiciary is actually a good thing and you want to maintain it, um, then I think um, all, under almost any circumstances, you ought to be extremely skeptical um, of, of court packing proposals, no matter what you think the short-term gain might be um, in terms of uh, getting uh, some better immediate outcomes from the court. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you game it out, right, let's say it's, um, you want to, you know, let's say Biden wants to pack the court to um, save Roe v. Wade, right? So then you put four guys, you put four justices on the court, and they up, they save Roe v. Wade. So that you've just sent the message that these people were put on there to, to, to be pliable, you know, hackish servants, even if they're doing it in all good conscience and with they believe that they've got the law and the constitutional constitution on their side, I would have my disagreements with them, but fine. But there are, there are serious liberals who think Roe v. Wade's great, right? right. Or worth maintaining. Sure. You can make the same argument about, you know, a half dozen things that the Supreme court, you know, big controversial, you know, the second amendment stuff and the, and that my problem with that, I mean, other than the, just the badness of it on its face is that it then gives permission structure not just to play the same game and expand the court more or reduce the court and get rid of like the most recent appointees or whatever, but it also just gives everybody permission structure to be partisan hacks because we've now established that, that it's perfectly fine for Supreme Court justices to be partisan hacks. What I don't get, I mean, is how people don't get this problem. And, you know, I understand that uh, partisanship is a hell of a drug and that if these circumstances were reversed, I don't think the federal society would be particularly hypocritical on this. I mean, there'd be some hypocrites, but for the most part, I think they're pretty consistent on this stuff, but there would certainly be a lot of Republicans who'd be saying, we got to expand the court. And there'd be a lot of Democrats saying, don't you know that, you know, blah, blah, blah this is a terrible moral hazard. But, um, like every time I, and I try to avoid doing this, I listen to say Lawrence tribe. It seems like the only way you can justify the court expansion argument is to basically make the argument that the current Supreme Court is, is operationally illegitimate. Because otherwise, you're just opening yourself up to being a partisan. And you, so you have to say, you have to raise the stakes so high that you have to say democracy is on the line and, and all these kinds of things. I mean, what, what is your response to those kinds of indictments of the Supreme Court. I'm not asking you to be the Supreme Court's spokesperson or flack, but like it doesn't seem to me that the Supreme Court is the partisan hack, you know, uh body that I 
that Lawrence Tribe or like the primetime people on MSNBC describe it as, if it were, uh, Donald Trump would be much happier with his Supreme Court appointments. Yeah, I, I mean, I think in part this is the challenge of our polarized environment that the opposition always seems like partisan hacks. And and so um, it's increasingly the case, um, I think, that um, uh, many on the left um, uh, look at the conservative justices and think, um, uh, yeah, the, these are, in fact, partisan hacks and everything that they do is hackery. Um, and so uh, we're already living in a world um, in which the court is just uh, engaged in uh, partisan hackery. Um, and likewise, I think increasingly many um, of those on the political right look at the justices on the left and think the same thing. Um, and and so um, one thing that's just really hard, I think, in a polarized environment is sustaining some um, genuine belief that um, some institutions um, are acting in good faith, um, that they're not just captured by the other side, that people just have some substantive disagreements and that we shouldn't just reduce those disagreements um, down to saying this is nothing but hackery, but instead taking those those disagreements as um, important and principled. Um, and sometimes we ought to live with the fact that, that uh, people with um, those kinds of deep disagreements are sometimes going to uh, be able to uh, win and, and make decisions um, uh, that we disagree with. There's just a lot less tolerance for uh, losing uh, these days and a lot more willingness to um, uh, paint the other side um, as just engaging in um, hackery. And so um, I, I think once you've sort of are thinking in those terms generally, then the, the cost of engaging in something like court packing is seem much lower um, because it really does seem like uh, you're already living in the uh, world that, that the opponents of court packing want to say, well, you don't want to find yourself in that p- position where people just think about the court as a bunch of hacks um, and everybody on it is engaged in hackery and everybody thinks it's illegitimate because they think we're already there. Um, and if we're already there, why not just make sure that we're on the winning side <laughs> of, that, of that kind of world? Um, so there's that kind of concern. I think there's also, though, uh, more specific um, concerns that help, um, uh, even if you don't sort of imagine that that's the world you're living in now, that sort of helps sell um, uh, those who are supportive of court packing on, on that idea. One is to think that the, that the moment is unique because of the particulars of how the confirmation process has played out um, in recent years with uh, Garland um, uh, not being appointed and then um, um, uh, Barrett being added very uh, late um, in Trump's terms. So some would argue um, these are unique circumstances and they justify, therefore, a unique response um, um, that doesn't have larger implications for how we think about um, the court more generally, and likewise have a built-in limiting principle that only in these kinds of circumstances um, is it appropriate to expand the size of the bench. Um, and so presumably those circumstances don't uh, reappear. Um, or alternatively, some would argue, in fact, that the court is just so uh, badly off the rails um, on its substantive views about the Constitution um, that it becomes essential um, uh, to uh do something about it. Um, I, you know, fundamentally, it's a left-wing version of the Flight 93 um, election kind of rhetoric that we are in crisis circumstances. Um, uh, we can't survive as a republic if we let the other side win. Um, and so you can't let the other side win. You have to do whatever it takes in order to stop them uh, from doing it. And as you say, that just creates a permission structure for all kinds of bad behavior. And, and I think not only once you go down this kind of road, 
Does it encourage additional court packing um, efforts and breaking of those kinds of constitutional norms? I think it encourages all kinds of, of violations of constitutional norms um, because you're going around telling everybody um, the future of democracy is at stake. And if that's the case, then why don't you um, hold a riot in the middle of the Capitol in order to stop uh, the other side from winning an election, uh, for example? Um, things are just really bad under those circumstances that encourages all kinds of people to do some really bad things. Um, I mean, I think the other thing that that weirdly seems to be at play for some of the progressives who are supportive of court packing is is they somehow imagine the other side will not get a turn in the bat. Um, and so they somehow imagine we will pack the court now um, and we don't have to worry about um, a possibility that the other side will eventually win the election and might want to court, pack the court um, instead. And that might make sense if you imagine, in fact, you have such a dominant political majority um, that you don't expect the other side to win an election um, in the next generation, uh, for example. So by the time they get back into power, um, no one's going to be thinking about this issue anymore. Uh, they'll be thinking about something else um, uh, down the road. Um, so when the Republican Party um, changed the size of the Supreme Court in the midst of the Civil War um, and in the early years um, of Reconstruction, um, you might imagine that if the Democrats had immediately regained power um, uh, in D.C., um, they might have well responded uh, to some of that manipulation of the court size. Um, but the Republicans benefited from the fact that Democrats didn't have control of unified government um, of the federal government for uh, decades um, after that. Um, and by then, there are a whole other set of issues people are much more focused on uh, than responding to court packing. But I don't think that's the world we live in right now. Um, I think instead what we ought to anticipate is Republicans are probably going to have divide, uh, unified government uh, fairly soon. Um, and if you were to pack the court under um, Democratic authority, the Republicans would do the same thing. And likewise, I think Republicans, when they do have that unified control, ought to, ought to realize that as well, um, that if they were to pack the court um, when they have power, they ought to expect the Democrats uh, will respond accordingly uh, next, next time around. Yeah, I mean, I, I've written a bunch about this. It is one of the weir weirdest drivers of our political dysfunction is that both parties are, are sort of I mean, schizophrenic is not the right word anymore, but uh, on the one hand, they, th I mean, let's do it this way. On the one hand, each side of the culture war thinks they always lose. On the other hand, each party, the second it gets in power, thinks it will either be in power forever and has a mandate to do whatever the hell it wants because the American people have finally spoken with an authoritative voice, or they think our hold on power is so tenuous that we have to do all the stuff we can do and swing for the fences as much as possible because we'll lose power soon enough. And it is bizarre to me. I mean, like the, the idea that Biden could have a new, new deal. If you go back and you look at like your point, which is a very good one, which hadn't really occurred to me about the reconstruction era Republicans and expanding the court on paper, FDR had a, he, that logic worked for him. He had won, I think by 37, I mean, there was a backlash in those midterms, but like, it, but, but by 36, at least, I think there were like nine Republicans left in the Senate or something or 11. I mean, it was like insane, the supermajority that he had. And so, yeah, why not swing for the fences and get everything that you can? I mean, as a political matter, not as a, you know, a matter. Um, but Biden got elected where, you know, the, his control over the Senate was because his vice president can split the ties. And the only reason he has the Senate is because 
two Senate seats were handed to the Democrats by Donald Trump on January 6th. The idea that somehow that constitutes a mandate for a new New Deal is bizarre. And yet that's sort of the mindset that they all come in with is like revolutionary transformational change rather than I kind of miss George H.W. Bush saying we have more will than wallet, Um, you know, um, and I don't know how you get people out of that mindset. Well, I think it's hard. I mean, I think partially there's a vision, uh, which I think is particularly true on the left. I think it's less true on the right. But but there is a vision on the left these days that if you build it, people will come. And so I think there is some thought um, that if you uh, swing for the fences and you launch a new New Deal, um, that will build uh, your giant political majority and and you will then be able to successfully uh, win elections down the road and have uh, giant supermajorities as a consequence of that. Um, I think that's probably not right as a political calculation, but that does seem to be at least part of what uh, some people are thinking now. So you should be judged less about the majority you currently have uh, than what the the majority might look like um, uh, down the road if you were to take these uh, take these kinds of steps. Um, I, I don't know. I find it is a remarkable situation. I think the the kind of and it contributes to our larger dysfunction. The, the ways in which people are thinking about um, the stability of their own uh, majorities and what they think the future elections outcomes are going to look like. Um, I would be, frankly, a little less concerned about um, court packing if I thought it was the case that uh, if the Democrats did it now, it's also the case that Democrats will just dominate American politics for the next 25 years or something. Um, because it might have bad consequences from my perspective in terms of what the shape of constitutional law might look like. It might have bad consequences in, in terms of um, it does set a very troubling norm that sort of undoes some things that will uh, eventually uh, bite us down the road. Um, but it wouldn't create an immediate danger that the court's immediately going to become a political football. Um, uh, you're not going to have immediate reprisals. Uh, we will, politics will move on and forget about it. Um, and, and you will not have the same kind of danger that I think, in fact, we're confronting now, uh, where, uh, what you're doing is now just going to set off a whole set of escalations, um, um, on this front. We ought to be trying to think about how do we de-escalate, um, uh, the fighting over constitutional norms rather than, rather than escalating the fighting over constitutional norms. And one thing that's striking about the 37 debate though, as well as if you look at that, is, is as you say, right, there's massive supermajorities um, uh, behind FDR in part that he thinks precisely because you have those supermajorities, um, it ought to be easier and more appropriate to get that kind of court packing. The Republicans um, are not in a position um, uh, to fight back on this in any serious way for, for quite a long time um, after 37. Um, but part of what motiv- motivates the Senate Democrats that are opposed to um, court packing is less an argument about well, what happens when the Republicans take over, because they can look around and see, well, they're probably not going to take over anytime soon. They're much more focused on the argument of uh, this gives the president dictatorial powers. Um, it's too much presidential power to allow a president to make these min- this many appointments to the court. And they're operating in an environment in which people are already concerned about FDR and how much power he has um, as a president. And court packing is seen as a handmaiden um, to presidential power um, specifically. That's less the dynamic of our own conversations about these things. Um, but it's striking how much uh, people are thinking that's part of the worry. And it's not just a partisan problem. It's specifically a presidential um, uh, empowerment problem associated with, with court packing as, as they saw it. Yeah, I, 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 as much as I would like to take the bait and go <laughs> deep in the weeds on, on this point um, about FDR and presidential power and the imperial presidency, uh, I will switch gears. Um, so my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that 
a bunch of people kind of changed their minds about term limits for Supreme Court justices after doing this, including, I believe, my my friend and hot dog champion eating uh, hot dog eating champion friend Adam White. Uh, um, where, first of all, is that right? But second of all, where were you on the issue when you're going in, and where are you on the issue now? I think that's probably right, actually. I think some people um, changed their mind um, a little bit. Adam White has said he has. Um, I um, and, and some other people have um, suggested that as well. Um, I was um, uh, not very enthusiastic about um, term limits going in. For me, it always seemed like a, a solution in search of a problem. Um, as to why we were trying to do term limits um, in in the first place. Um, now they have found a particular um, problem they think this is going to solve, but but term limits doesn't seem like a very good solution to that particular problem. So if the problem that you're really focused on is um, you don't like what the current Supreme Court looks like, um, term limits seems like a very uh, difficult, <laughs> complicated and not very effective way um, of addressing uh, that uh, particular um, problem. When you say what they found the problem, you mean getting Breyer and Thomas off? The well, court? yeah. So, so one one pitch for court, for term limits now is basically you combine term limits with court packing, and so you add a bunch of new justices. Um, and then you set their terms to be 18 years going forward. Um, and so uh, you get the immediate change um, of what the composition of the court looks like. Um, and then you put in place this, and then the term limits in some ways becomes the excuse for doing that um, because it allows you to set up a, court, uh, a term limits scheme um, in, in the long term. Um, people are much less enthusiastic about term or, or, that, or that kind of progressive argument. Um, the, the, those people are much less supportive of the notion of term limits if you detach it uh, from any immediate um, uh, court packing element. So if you say, fine, we'll introduce court packing gradually over the next uh, two decades, <laughs> people are, are less enthusiastic about, well, what does that get us? Um, it doesn't get you very much uh, in, the, in the near term. Um, but that's I my only more- way. I could, by the way, I, I, I've been thinking about this. That's the only way I would be in favor or okay with court packing or expanding the court, because that's where you have a distinction between expanding the court and court packing. Is if you say in ten years, right? So we don't know who's going to be president. We don't know who's going to what the Senate's going to look like. The number of Supreme Court justices goes from nine to eleven or thirteen or whatever it is, and then it becomes a political issue about you know getting ready for all of that. But like you can't game it the way you could. If we're going to say effective immediately, we're adding four seats to the Supreme Court. No, I think these kinds of changes are always best done prospectively so that you're not so you don't know who's going to benefit uh, from making the change. But you're you're putting it in gradually. You're putting it at some point in the the further future. Um, And and then uh, and then you think about, well, would I really like it if the Republicans are the ones filling those seats (laughs) as opposed to the Democrats being the ones? And if you still think it's a good idea, then okay, then we'll have a conversation. Um, But if it turns out that you no longer find it very attractive at that point, uh, then, you know, presumably something's gone wrong. I have become more skeptical, though, of, of term limits, even as an approach. Like I said, I went in sort of mildly skeptical, but now I'm even more skeptical um, because it, it seems to me that there are um, uh, really, really deep problems um, uh, with uh, the back end part of this. And so uh, the idea of, of limiting justice to 18 year terms, for example, doesn't strike me as all that uh, big of a deal or all that problematic. Um, if, if though part of the point of term limits is to say, uh, we want a process that regularizes how often vacancies occur and makes guarantee basically every president gets uh, in each term two appointments to make. Um, uh, to the court, um, unless you do something uh, dramatic to the uh, Senate uh, 
confirmation process, you're not going to accomplish that objective, right? You still have the possibility that, yeah, vacancies might occur um, on a regular basis, um, but that doesn't mean you're going to fill those vacancies on a regular basis unless you do something pretty serious um, to the confirmation process. And moreover, you haven't changed the possibility that people might game that system. And so um, there's sort of an assumption for a lot of supporters of the term limit proposal that if you give uh, justice 18 years, they will necessarily hang on for the full 18 years. But that might not be true either, right? So it's also possible to imagine um, a justice who thinks, well, look, if I resign after 16 years, I can make sure that my friendly president gets to fill my seat um, rather than my hostile president. And some justices may well make that choice as well, in which case you haven't solved the problem of strategic retirements and and you still haven't solved the problem really of regularized uh, vacancies. Um, And so I just don't think term limits... um, will work very well. Um, and, and I think it really does require um, a lot more very hard thought about um, uh, what the judicial appointments process uh, looks like and what do you do about um, these kinds of possibilities of peop- uh, people creating vacancies early, um, either voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, and what does that do to your neat structure of, of um, that you're trying to create with term limits? Yeah. And also, I mean, it works on the other side as well is that the... Um you could also game when you take up cases, right? You could strategically, uh, you know, slow walk taking up X case or Y case, knowing that, oh, well, in two years, so-and-so goes and another two years that guy goes. And so we'll have a better, we'll be in a better position, um, to, to deal with this later. Um, yeah, but it's totally predictable when the vacancies are going to occur and when you're going to get changes in composition of the court, right? There are all kinds of spillover effects about what kind of strategic behavior starts making sense um, under under those conditions. Um, and, and that may not all be bad, but 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 you got to think that through. <laughs> and and I think that's hard. And, you know, so one issue about the structure of the commission, for example, is it's a tremendous number of lawyers and law professors. Uh, and then there's me. Um, so I was the, I was the lone uh, person without a law degree on the commission. Um, I'm a political scientist by uh, training. These are issues I work on. And so um, I thought it was appropriate, but uh, certainly a lot of my political science colleagues would say you needed some more social scientists on the commission who who can think about these kind of questions of institutional incentives, for example, um, um, uh, what the consequences of institutional reforms might look like. Um, and lawyers have one kind of perspective on that, but but people who study political structures for a living uh, have a somewhat different perspective on that. And it might have been useful to hear a few more of those voices um, on, on the commission. But the nice thing about not having a law degree or not being a lawyer is that you can see reflection in a mirror, which is always nice. Yeah, no, it makes it easier to shave when I shave. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, and my, uh, Sarah Isger, um, from our, our niche legal podcast, she, she also raises another political science kind of point, which is somewhat terrifying. Uh, you know, what is the minimum age to become a Senator 35? Yeah, so right. like you could have Josh Hawley types. Sure. Get appointed to the Supreme Court and then have an eye on the presidency. And either they're there for 18 years and they're just a Ted Cruzian pain in the ass, messing everything up and preening for the public or something short of that, but still with an eye towards politics. You know, you have that problem still now, but like it, it's it's less of a problem when you start adding so much strategery to the, the equation. and. Um, well, moreover, you sort of require in some ways. And so we've always had 
um, a problem, a potential problem of justices trying to calculate what am I going to do after I'm a Supreme Court justice and are there other kinds of jobs I'd rather have? And and earlier stages of our history, that was a much more serious problem because you appointed people with political careers um, onto the court and they sometimes wanted to have political careers after they left the court. And so you had justices with presidential ambitions um, on the court at various points in American history. Um, and that was a real issue. Now we tend not to appoint those kinds of people to the court. And one reason why we actually have justices who serve much longer um, uh, is not be- simply because people live longer. That's what a f- focus has often been is, well, now people live longer. And so, uh, of course, you're going to get these uh, people serving on the court for long periods of time. Um, but I think what the evidence actually suggests is what we've done is um, uh, change the kind of people we put on the court. We put people on the court now that their whole lifetime ambition was to be on the court. Um, they want to be permanent judges. Um, and so they don't resign. Whereas earlier in American history, we put on all these politicians and lo and behold, a bunch of them said, the court's kind of boring. I want to go do something else. Um, and they were willing to resign and go do something else. The 18-year term limit certainly, um, I think, puts very directly on the table, though, that problem of what are people going to do um, after the 18 years is over. Um, it's a very long term, and so it's not as uh, dramatic of a problem as if you had an eight-year term or something like that, where where it's sort of obvious people are going to have to have careers after the fact. I think now a lot of people sort of assume, well, 18 years is in fact so long, people won't even need careers afterwards. Um, they'll just retire um, at that point. But there's no real reason to assume that that's going to be uh, true. Um, and so not only do you have to worry about, well, what, is, what if they're looking for other presidential office, other political offices um, after they're um, a judge and they're spending part of their time on the court trying to position themselves for that. But you also have to worry about what are they thinking about other kinds of jobs. They want to go be a lobbyist or they want to go work for a corporation. And so um, now they're planning out um, uh, what's my, my, my retirement package after I leave the bench is going to get a really cushy job with some corporation and loan hold that corporation has a case uh, coming up um, while I'm still on the court. And so there's all kinds of bad incentives that can be opened um, by um, that fact that you're eventually going to push people off the court and they have to be thinking about uh, what are we going to do next. Um, And it's a real, I think it's an issue you have to grapple with really seriously. Um, And and the more we grappled with it on the commission, I think um, the more obvious it was that this is actually not something with a very easy or good solution. Um, And so I think uh, what part of what the commission report basically does is sort of highlight how complicated that issue is and then sort of leave it to others to make some decisions about if if you really want to go that route, um, how exactly you're going to do it and what bullets are you willing to bite um, as as part of that process. Um, And then last thing on the commission stuff, um, I do want to ask you about a couple other um, things. Uh, One of the things that was talked about was stripping the Supreme Court of jurisdiction and various things. I find that the I find this kind of in some ways the most intriguing and also just kind of the weirdest kind of debate um because it seems to me the Supreme Court strips itself of jurisdiction of all sorts of things <laughs> it's anyway but anyway w- you know what was that all about what is the goal there yeah so um uh so just to be clear about jurisdiction stripping so Congress has an authority to um set what the jurisdiction of the, of the federal courts is going to look like. Um, they have a pretty expansive authority to set jurisdiction for lower uh, federal courts. And even for the U.S. Supreme Court, the Constitution uh, specifies in its text that Congress can make exceptions to the court's appellate jurisdiction. Um, there's some original jurisdiction cases that's, that start off in the Supreme Court um, that Congress couldn't affect. But, but of course, almost all the cases the court actually deals with are cases they hear on appeal from other 
um, lower courts and Congress can um, alter um, uh, which cases can get to the court and which cases uh, cannot. Okay, so so just so I understand this, because again, I'm not aware. Um, you can't strip the Supreme Court of its jurisdiction on the things that the Supreme Court clearly has jurisdiction over. But you could, but if you were going to strip the appellate, if you were to try to keep the Supreme Court with dealing with certain issues, you'd have to take it you have to take those issues away from the federal judiciary entirely? No, you could take some cases specifically just from the U.S. Supreme Court and leave it in the uh, lower federal courts um, so that however it is the Ninth Circuit comes out on that case, that's where it lands. That's and, dispositive. And you, and you can't peel, appeal up to the Supreme Court. Or you could also structure it so that it never gets out of state Supreme Courts, for example. And so um, uh, these issues are fully resolved in the state courts um, and can't be appealed up into uh, the federal courts are appealed up into the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Um, there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy, it seems to me, surrounding these kinds of jurisdiction stripping measures. Um, people sometimes pitch them as um, attractive because it reduces the power of the court, um, but there are relatively few people in current politics who actually want to reduce the power of the court in general. Um, they just don't like specific things the court does, um, but they're very happy to have the court doing other things. I mean, one in, in some fashion, the, the Texas abortion bill, SB8, is, um, uh, fits this kind of structure and it is precisely designed to make really hard for the court um, to review, review a bunch of legislative decisions. Jurisdiction stripping is sort of designed to do the same thing. Um, but the same people who sort of like jurisdiction stripping um, uh, for certain purposes are very unhappy uh, with SB8. Um, and I think there's some perfectly good reasons to be unhappy with SB8. Um, uh, but a lot of those same reasons should lead you to be pretty unhappy with jurisdiction stripping as well. But also, it's it, people, I think, tend not to be very consistent about this because it's um, uh, as, a, as a tool for limiting what the U.S. Supreme Court does, um, all jurisdiction stripping can do for you um, is leave the case as it's resolved in some other court. Um, and so if you have a lot of faith in the state courts and what they're doing, then maybe you can say, OK, we don't want any of those cases to get up to the federal courts because we just don't trust the federal courts and we're willing to make that a general claim. There were some people in the early 19th century who thought that way. Um, there were some Jeffersonians and Jacksonians who thought that'd be a great idea. Let's get the federal courts out of this business and we'll leave most things to be resolved in state courts. Um, there haven't been very many people very enthusiastic about that as a general solution uh, since then. Um, and likewise, if you think, well, we'll leave some of these things in the federal circuit courts, um, there aren't very many people that are actually all that much happier with saying, OK, yeah, I'll be perfectly content with however the Ninth Circuit comes out on this issue. I just don't want the U.S. Supreme Court touching it. Um, so Can it's you a give very, me a for true, instance, true, true, about what like yeah. what, what is the issue that they most want to strip the Supreme Court of? Uh, I, I, it is not obvious to me actually what is currently motivating this. So there, there were earlier proposals where it was much cleaner. So actually conservatives in the early eighties, for example, were all enthusiastic about jurisdiction stripping on a bunch of issues. They wanted to strip the court of jurisdiction over busing, for example, um, at one point, cause they thought the court was uh, too liberal on, on busing issues. They wanted to strip um, the court on some abortion issues because they thought the court was too liberal on abortion issues, um, at one point. And so, uh, you had to, Jesse Helms, for example, was a big advocate of, of this um, in, the, in the early 80s. And so there were uh, school prayer was was among the things conservatives were interested in, in court stripping for. It didn't even make sense from for the same reasons. It didn't make a lot of sense under those circumstances either. Um, but it's not obvious, actually, what exactly the progressives have in mind now that they want to um, uh, strip jurisdiction of. Um, uh, I, I think in part there is probably 
I think I think there are certainly some progressives who think that if you left it in the hands of lower federal courts or the state courts, um, you'd get uh, different kinds of answers about, for example, partisan gerrymandering um, and whether or not um, courts ought to be intervening more aggressively in that. And so you can imagine saying, OK, we're just going to get the Roberts court out of that question and then we'll leave it in the hands of some other set of courts on whatever they want to do about partisan gerrymandering. And maybe they'll be more aggressive um, about saying ju- judiciary ought to intervene in those in those kind of cases. Uh, maybe you get lower federal courts that are uh, take a different view about gun rights, for example, um, uh, than the Roberts court would. And so let's um, disempower the Supreme Court and leave this in the hands um, of some circuit courts where maybe progressives would be happier uh, with the answer on some gun rights uh, cases. So there are some specific issues, I think, where um, there is a calculation that um, the Supreme Court is uniquely bad uh, from their perspective and you get better answers you like, you like better if you left it in, in the hands of either state courts or the lower federal courts. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean I'm just gaming it out in my head. I've not spent a lot of time thinking about this, but like, I could see the argument on abortion, leaving it to state courts. And then you'd have that would effectively get rid of Roe v. Wade, right? Because you would then or um, or even on guns. I mean, I, I don't want to get Charlie Cook mad at me, but like, you know, if you can you can make an argument that like this should be this is a federalism issue and some states can have full gun rights and others don't and blah, blah, blah. I, I'm just saying, like, I could see the limiting it to state jurisdiction so long as it didn't cover things that ran afoul of, say, I don't know, the 14th Amendment. Well, and like I said, well, of course, the problem is all those things or get to the federal courts through the 14th Amendment right, for the exactly. most part. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, like, as I said, there's, there's really not much support for that notion in general these days, right? So the same people who would like to say, uh, well, I'd really like how this state court would rule on that issue, uh, would not at all be happy with say, I'm equally okay with some other state court doing it. And so um, the ones who would like however the California Supreme Court would do it uh, would not be happy with how the Texas court does it and vice versa. And so um, I just don't think there are very many people who are very consistent on that kind of issue who are really willing to say, yeah, let's just let the state courts um, hash it out and whatever conclusions individual state courts get to um, on abortion or gun rights or uh campaign finance or whatever. Um, I'm just, I'm just happy to leave it there and and we'll let those, um, uh, cards play out however they're going to play out. Uh, not very many people willing to let the cards play out however they're going to play out. All right. So let's, let's just move on. I, I warned you, we talked about it a little bit before we started and you said you're, you've been so busy with the commission that you, you're not following the news as closely as you otherwise might be. And that's fine. But I, I think you're aware of the broad brushstrokes that's going on we are now ruled by an alien race of super ants um i don't know if you heard about no just kidding um, no and I, and I am very supportive of super ants and uh, so uh, i see your hail ants poster absolutely behind you. so yeah. whatever i can do to help out the regime <laughs> I'm, I'm totally on board um they they could use a political science to, scientist to help them out with their uh sugar caves all right yeah, so exactly. no, um uh we are in the throes of a brouhaha um, with the January 6th committee, commission committee, um, that um, in part because Mark Meadows um, has employed the uh, unique legal strategy of handing over some 9,000 pages of documents and then right. invoked executive <laughs> privilege. Um, right. And um, and the, the the texts are embarrassing to people. I, I, I will save my rant about all that for another time, um, unless you you goad me. Um, but it seems to me, I, so one of the, one of my positions that pleases almost nobody is that 
I'm very, very, very cross with Republicans for how they have handled how they handled both impeachments um, and how they constantly searched for some pretext or rationale to help them avoid doing the right thing. But I'm also very, very cross. And so there all the Democrats agree with me. Um, but then I'm also very cross with the Democrats, particularly Nancy Pelosi, and how they structured these impeachments as 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 partisan spectacles rather than as serious defenses of the first branch of government and its prerogatives. And it seems to me that a lot of the stuff that we're seeing right now, and I agree with you, anticipating part of your answer, uh, I agree with you that part of the problem was an impeachment with only like two weeks left on a presidency is going to be fraught for all sorts of specific reasons. That said, the stuff that's going on with the January 6th committee, which I'm entirely in favor of finding out and getting to the bottom of all that stuff, should properly have been part of an executive committee or a select committee or whatever as part of an impeachment trial almost a year ago. And so what, what is your just general take on this hot mess? And, <laughs> um, um, and does it raise any profound constitutional issues for you or you just think it's a hot partisan mess? Yeah, no, uh, as you know, impeachment's one of the things I've, I've had a long interest in. I'm trying to work on a book manuscript now um, uh, on, on the impeachment process and impeachment politics uh, more, more generally. I suspect we're not done yet with uh, um, impeachments as, as something that we're uh, going to have to confront and talk about. Um, and, and I was very disappointed by how the impeachment process played out during the, the Trump administration. Um, as you say, uh, it was a much more partisan process than I think it needed to be. Um, uh, I think both sides contributed to that quite a lot. Um, the Republicans certainly uh, were digging in and their defenses of Trump and, and weren't very open uh, to uh, thinking seriously about uh, some of the failings of the administration, but uh, likewise, um, the House Democratic majority in particular um, really wanted to frame these in very partisan terms, both impeachments, I think, and wanted to play them out in very partisan terms um, that made it very difficult. Um, I, I thought they should have at least made much more of an effort to to take a bipartisan approach um, uh, to those impeachment processes. I'm not sure it would have come out a lot differently, but um, it certainly would have been better for the institutions um, if, if they had taken that effort. Um, and I think now we're trying to backfill for some of what the impeachment um, should have been doing in the first place. There is part of, partially a question, I think, about what it is you're trying to accomplish, especially with the second impeachment, So, which, of course, is the thing most closely tied to the January 6th um, uh, committee efforts now. Um, if, if the goal was to say, um, uh, we have somebody currently occupying uh, the White House who is deeply dangerous to the republic and needs to be immediately removed from power, um, so that he can't do anything uh, going forward. Um, there's not going to ever be much time to investigate. There's not ever going to be much time to try to extract email messages out of Mark Meadows um, and others. Uh, the need for speed was uh, going to be the dominant uh, thing that was driving the House. Um, and it should have all been moved very quickly then. I actually thought and had called for um, a House impeachment the same day as yeah. January 6th, right? No, I mean, they should have come back in session, finished counting the votes, and then immediately impeached um, uh, the president and Senate over uh, to the Senate for, for a trial. Um, if what you think has to happen is Donald Trump needs to be immediately removed from office, that's what you would have done. But that's not what they did. 
Um, instead, they slow walked this thing um, in the House um, and and made it very evident um, that the point was not to say uh, Donald Trump needs to be immediately removed from office. Their goal was something else. And presumably then at that point, the goal is to say, um, uh, we need to uh, censor and denounce um, the activities that have occurred, and we need to expose uh, what happened, in which case you ought to have been doing some of the same kind of fact-finding work um, uh, that they're doing uh, now, and you still would have had the same issue at, by the time it gets to the Senate of thinking about what do you do about a late impeachment, um, and what should the Senate do uh, with that kind of thing. Part of what I'm a little frustrated by with the January 6th committee, though, as well, is it seems to me that, that some of the fact-finding you, you would want to do around that event um, involved... Uh, President Trump and his particular responsibilities um, associated with that. But part of what I think a, com- a committee like this now in, uh, could, could be doing and should be doing is to say there's a larger set of issues here besides just Donald Trump and his particular personal responsibility um, uh, for those events. You also want to know things like um, what accounts for the security failures um, around the Capitol on that day. Why was the um, Capitol grounds not better secured than it was? Why weren't there better preparations uh, being made for it um, at the time? Um, that really has nothing to do with Donald Trump. Um, that has to do with other issues coming out of January 6th. And a committee like this ought to be looking li- at that um, a- as well. Um, so th- I think there are useful things for a committee to be doing uh, at this point. But but some of what they're doing now really should have been done as part of the impeachment process. Yeah, I mean, part of the dilemma for the committee is the Republicans are going to take back the House barring something crazy and um the republicans are going to shut this thing down right away and so uh concentrating on the key stuff that is that is most stonewalled you know i mean i i I, i'm not privy to their internal deliberations but you could understand why there's a there's a prioritizing queuing problem in something like that when you know there's a shot clock on 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 the committee and I, I suspect part of it is obviously a, a deeply partisan desire to get something that could hurt Republicans going into the 2022 midterms. And I, I get that, you know, but like either, you know, I, I guess, I mean, the, my, uh, my enduring critique of all of this is that, the, and I know you're basically on the same page as I am, is that you know, the House or the Congress is not expressly, it's, it's, it's not like the fraternity's car where everybody gets a week where it's their turn to own the car, right? It is an institution unto itself and a institution with real self-respect and a real sense of its role in the constitutional order would have handled both impeachments, but particularly the second impeachment much differently. And would have written the article of impeachment in a way that made it much more difficult for Republicans to vote against it, would have worked assiduously to have Republicans on the managers, you know, the impeachment managers list. And they and Nancy Pelosi did none of that. And I'm sure for internal reasons that make total sense inside the bunker and inside the bubble, but I don't give a rat's ass about those kinds of reasons. And, um, and so it just seems to me that that it's nothing is going to get satisfactorily resolved from this unless there truly is some crazy, you know, smoking gun, you know, some, you're damn right. I ordered the code red (laughs) kind of moment, which would be great, but I just don't see it necessarily coming down the pike. 
No, I think that's clearly right. That the, the nothing out of this process is going to be very satisfying. Um, uh, in part, I think you're probably also right that the real political imperative um, on this committee is: can we dig up some dirt on our political opponents before the next election? Which is really shouldn't be the goal of a of a committee like that. But unfortunately, I think that's where we are. Um, and of course, to the extent that we're going to create a committee of this sort. Part of, I think part of the difficulties are just baked in because the I was deeply disappointed that the Republicans um, decided early on not to go along with the idea of a bipartisan commission that would actually look into these issues more more generally. And um, so the Republicans also had their moments when they could have tried to think about the institution, uh, not to mention the Republic, uh, a little more um, and think about their own immediate partisan interest a little less. And, and the Republicans chose not to go that down that route. The Democrats certainly um, uh, are, are not very interested in going down that uh, path. Um, and so uh, I think the consequences are there's nothing that's going to be very satisfying that emerges out of this, out of this process. Um, and the, the limited shot clock certainly does not help. Um, there's going to be a lot less fact-finding um, than one would hope. Um, and the other thing that uh, sort of frustrated my perspective in thinking about what it's something like this could do, including what the impeachment process could have done, um, is the other thing people point to is saying, well, this is all going to be, the Republicans in particular like to point to this, is saying, well, this can all be taken care of someplace else, which is, uh, which is this claim that the criminal prosecutions of those who actually rioted um, uh, will solve all these problems and reveal everything that needs to be revealed. Um, Republicans seem to be becoming much less interested in having that process play out either. Um, but um, but early on, there's a lot of talk about, well, we don't really need a commission like this. The, the DOJ is going to do all the work um, that needs to be done on this. But again, the kind of fact-finding that's revealed in that process is just going to be much more limited and doesn't go to all the issues that we ought to really be thinking about um, as part of what went wrong on January 6th and the days leading up to January 6th. Um, and you would have hoped a committee like this would do more on that front. And unfortunately, there's there's only going to be so much they can actually do. Yeah. So I haven't gotten into the weeds on this specific point. I just seen the, the tweets and the top line headlines about this. But apparently, apparently in one of the text messages, um, Mark Meadows says that Trump is going to have the National Guard there to protect the pro-Trump people. And you can understand why certain people are reading that in the most ominous way Yes. possible and i'm not right. saying that ominous way is wrong and that may be the right reading yeah but it could I, be I a just, different reading i just wrong. don't know enough there was some weird stuff going on with the national guard and the and the pentagon that's one of the things we really should get to the bottom of yes and like, absolutely the idea that the pentagon isn't taking this issue i mean i get i understand the ig there's an ig report they did these things but like the mere whiff i mean it makes me want to bust out my samuel huntington you know you know the soldier in the state stuff i mean like the mere whiff that maybe there were elements in the U.S. military, even if it's completely untrue, just the suspicion that that was going on, that were, that were helping to keep a president to steal an office so he could steal an election. That's the kind of you just need wholesale investigations and purges because that's that's systemic and. Yeah, no, it's a serious problem. And moreover, of course, it's part of the difficulty of how of how we do our politics now that we're doing this through leaking information rather than something more systematic, right? And so, as you say, it's this is a deeply disturbing email um, or text or whatever it was that was uh, sent um, at the time. Um, but we have no context to it. The committee hasn't done the work to try to figure out what exa how exactly we ought to interpret this. Um, all we get is a leak that takes it on its own, and then everybody's left to have their own spin um, associated with it. And so it could be... 
um, extraordinarily disturbing because it suggests the military is somehow involved um, in what went down on January 6th at the end of the day. And that was the plot all along. And this is evidence of it. Um, but it could be instead that there is a real concern that there's going to be Antifa left wing riots around it. And the goal is to say, how do we have a presidential rally that does not get um, a bunch of uh, fighting on the outskirts of it? And maybe we need the National Guard to help uh, sustain that. Um, and both are, are credible um, as possibilities of what was happening, given the environment of the time. Um, and we don't know uh, what exactly was going on. This And, and so the, the this, is, this is no way to run a railroad. This right. I, mean, I, I agree with that entirely. It may, there may be, I mean, an innocuous explanation uh, it, or a benign explanation or certainly not a particularly fraught and dangerous explanation for it. Um, but my, my sort of point is, is just the mere suspicion that it's plausible that a sinister interpretation is plausible. That in and of itself is a serious threat to social peace, among other things, um, and needs to be investigated. No, it absolutely is. I mean, it's part of the problem of uh, breaking down of constitutional norms more generally. It was part of what was so troubling about the Trump presidency broadly um, is is a whole lot of things became plausible um, that should not even be on the table that no one is thinking seriously, but instead people are actually staying up at night worrying, um, is this what the president might be doing? Is this what the administration might be doing? And, and that mere fear, the mere fact that people are sincerely concerned that that might be what the other side does, feeds all this further constitutional norm breaking. It feeds all kinds of bad behavior more generally. It feeds your willingness um, to go off and ignore the other side. I think it probably feeds, for example, Nancy Pelosi's willingness to be as partisan as she is uh, through this impeachment process. I think she has other reasons to be as partisan as she is uh, through this process. But it doesn't help that she doesn't trust the other side either um, and, and worries that there's a lot of bad actors um, on the other side. And so when the trust breaks down to this degree, uh, when people are so worried um, that something as um, intolerable um, as the idea of the military might actually be involved or significant um, part Parts of the military might be involved um, in something like a plot to steal the election, um, uh, then then you are in serious trouble about how your constitutional system is going to work. Um, and, and we really desperately need to figure out a way um, of, of turning down the heat on these things and, and backing off. And part of it is uh, certainly to get the bottom of those kinds of concerns and actually trying to reveal what's actually the truth here. Um, and if there's actually a problem, we need to actually address it and fix it. Um, but, but part of it also means that if there's no truth there, if it's all smoke and no fire, uh, we need to know that too. Um, and try to reassure people that, in fact, they shouldn't be as concerned that these things are actually playing out much more normally um, than it might look. We weren't actually on the verge um, of the military in, invading capital as part of some kind of coup. Um, and, and so we ought to um, tone down some of our rhetoric and, and activities um, that are sort of premised on the idea that that's, that's where we are. Um, both things are really troubling. I, I mean, it is telling in like Jonathan Carl's book, um the military leadership called in the heads of the five news networks and told them, look, under no circumstances will the military be intervening in all of this. I'm glad that they did that. It's really bad that they felt the need to do that. Yeah, and, exactly. And, um, right. Um, and I just want to add one thing. I mean, I, I know it's not your specialty in the political science literature, but there's another factor here that I think is important to point out. Mark Meadows is an idiot. <laughs> um, and this is a well-established finding. It's replicable with experimentation. <laughs> I, I know it from personal testimony. Uh, and, uh, so who knows, 
he's I'll, I'll speak out of school. I normally don't divulge conversations with politicians, but I feel like this is an exception. Right. Mark Meadows would say to me personally, um, thank you for what you're doing on Fox. Thank you for standing up for true conservatism. Thank you, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he would say to other people I know, and then he would say the exact opposite to people who held the exact opposite views of mine. Um, he's a people pleaser. I mean, John Boehner talks about how he literally came into his office and dropped to his knees to beg for forgiveness for whatever. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a toady kind of guy. And so it is entirely possible that in his text messages, he is telling everybody what he thinks everybody wants to hear. And those things are going to contradict each other. And so it's, it's not the most reliable testimony about it. No, I think that's totally right. Of course, I mean, that's, and that's part of the problem of everything that surrounded Trump is there was just an, a lot of that kind of toadying in which people are telling people what they want to hear. Um, and it's very hard to know in some ways what people's sincere beliefs actually are in some of these things. And in some contexts, it doesn't matter what their sincere beliefs are because they actually are willing to act in very bad ways um, and when it matters, and including uh, in public, sometimes just rhetorically, but sometimes in, in terms of their actual um, actions. Um, yeah, one of the disturbing aspects of where we are these days is, is that uh, we have way too many people occupying positions of serious power and responsibility um, who are not living up to the kind of uh, responsibility that actually ought to come with the job. Um, yeah, it's a, yes, the, the Spider-Man wisdom of with great power comes great responsibility is, is real wisdom. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of politicians don't seem to be taking that very seriously these days. Well, on that note, I think that's a good place to end. Um, hope to have you back. Uh, my pleasure. I'm still, I still got to get that jacket. That's right. And, 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 um, um, when, when do you think I, 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 I don't I, know. I haven't actually counted it up yet. No, I don't no, know no, how no. much these things go for on eBay before I actually worry too much about it. No, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I love asking this question when I am not working on a book. When do you think your book's going to be done? Oh, good grief. Uh, the impeachment book. Um, so I as I think the impeachment book needs to be done fairly soon. So um, uh, and now that I don't have the commission to worry about, hopefully I can dedicate a little more time to it. And so um, I'm hoping to have a manuscript uh, in the next, uh, we'll, we'll call it three months. Okay. Well, when, when it's out, for sure, we'll have you back. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I should just ask a journalistic kind of question. So the commission report is done. The, the headlines were agnostic on court packing, I think was the word I saw right, most, yeah. most often. In your judgment, I know you're not on the phone daily with Joe Biden, but like <laughs> this commission has served its purpose by not serving any other purpose. And you don't think there's going to be any court packing in the near future. No, I mean, I don't think they have the votes anyway, which made the whole sort of exercise a little weird. Um, but uh, uh, but no, I think the commission in some ways has served its served its primary function, which is it successfully kicked the can down the road, um, uh, got to a point where uh, I would have liked to have seen the commission uh, done something like the 37 uh, Senate Judiciary Committee reports and and. Uh, uh, firmly uh, denounced court packing um, as outside the bounds, um, but that's not where we were. Um, and so uh, that would have been my preferable outcome, but I think the outcome of saying we were kind of agnostic and kind of threw cold water um, on court packing um, and disappointed people who were strongly supportive of court packing is probably an accomplishment <laughs> as, the, yeah. as these things go. And I haven't read the whole thing, but it's, it's, an, it's a well-written, for a government report, 
it's shockingly well written and interesting. I gotta say, um, and yeah, it was designed to be that way. And I and I have said I don't I can't claim any credit for for that aspect of it. I think, um, but um, but I do think the the report is actually valuable on on some dimensions. If you want to think seriously about, for example, term limits and the complications of term limits. I, I think the report is a great starting point for actually thinking that issue through. I think there are other issues where the report does a very good job of walking through what the considerations are, what the, in some cases, what the legal questions are and how, what the most credible answers to those legal questions are in ways that are very useful for anyone who t- wants to take that seriously. On this big picture bottom line question, is court packing a good thing? You know, in some ways, that's fundamentally a political decision. And a commission report like this is never going to uh, provide a particularly satisfying answer to anyone on on that basic question. But there's but there's lots of other things. I think the commission report actually does a very helpful job of of walking uh, people through. All right. So I'm sorry to ambush you after saying we're done. But uh, <laughs> Keith Whittington, thank you so much for doing this, and we'll have you back. And uh, appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. So uh, Keith. Keith Whittington has uh, left the studio and um, uh, always good to talk to him. And um, I, uh, I don't have any wonderful insights about our conversation because I am so uh, wound up by the stuff that we did at the end and um, my dyspepsia towards Mark Meadows that I don't think it's appropriate to rant about that more here. I will save that rant for elsewhere. Um, and uh, very excited. Uh, on Thursday, I'm recording a podcast with Sally Sattel, uh, my colleague at AI, one of my favorite people, and um, should be really interesting. And uh, it's good to be home, I've got to say. I'll talk about more of that um, on Friday. And um, thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, being a member of the Dispatch community, if you are one. And if you're not one, uh, maybe you should become one and um, keep up alive and I'll see you next time. No, you want. This is a podcast. <laughs>